Have you ever heard the phrase or the saying that some people say, well, listen, I forgive you, but I can never forget. That's not true forgiveness. That's not complete forgiveness. Of course you'll remember, but when you say, I can forgive you, but I can never forget, that's like burying a hatchet with the handle exposed. Oh, it's buried, but just in case you need it in the future, you can take it out of the sand and say, remember the time... One of the greatest examples of forgiveness is this character we've been reading about Joseph. A man that nothing bad is spoken of in the scripture. A guy who forgave his brothers. We've been reading about him and chapter 45 really has become the pinnacle of his forgiving his brothers as he gives them three different tests. But before we recap on a couple verses, I, I thought it might be good to get where we're at in perspective. We've been reading the book of Genesis. And from chapters 12 to the end is an important period of biblical history known as the patriarchal period, where we deal with patriarchs, men who walked with God. Abraham, we were introduced to in chapter 11, but really focused in on chapter 12. He had a simple faith in God. God spoke to him and he obeyed, sort of. I mean, it's sort of because God had to get his attention a couple times, didn't he? He wasn't really ready to obey. And some scholars believe it took him 15 years to really follow the very first thing God told him to do. Nonetheless, God's a patient guy, a patient God, and he works with his people. You know, I'll tell you what, you can't go wrong with God as your boss. I mean, you can goof up a hundred times, and as long as you repent... He'll restore you and take you back. I like that about God. Abraham was considered the man of faith, and yet he lapsed in his faith. He went down to Egypt when God told him not to. He did it anyway. He had his wife lie. He himself lied. He was a deceitful character. And yet he's used this great man of faith in the scripture, the patriarch. After him comes his son Isaac. And then after Isaac, Jacob... And then after Jacob, we've been focusing in upon Joseph in these last several chapters. The guys were simple. Um, during this period, God would speak either personally or by visions and dreams. They would erect an altar. They would have a sacrifice to God. They would speak very plainly to him. And it seemed after a while, nothing for God to just appear to these guys and speak to them sometimes in the form of the angel of the Lord, an appearance of God in human or angelic form in the Old Testament. Joseph, interestingly enough, never sees God face to face or has God speak to him like God speaks to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God speaks to Joseph through dreams. When he's a young kid, he sees a couple of dreams that foretell his future. Of course, when he is in prison... Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker have dreams. They can't interpret it. They are troubled. But Joseph is able to come up with the interpretation as God gives it to him. The one lesson that we are taught overshadowing all other lessons in the life of Joseph is the lesson of providence. Don't forget that. If you are to come away with one lesson in the latter portion of Genesis, remember God's providence. I have come more and more to appreciate and be intrigued with God's providence more than anything else. It's something that very few Christians really take time to consider. 
I have found that most Christians are enamored by the miraculous. And they read the book of Acts. And so they expect that every single day they ought to see a miracle. They ought to see a healing. Expect your miracle. And if you didn't see your miracle, you've been cheated or you didn't have enough faith or whatever lame excuse people come up with. And I've asked people, why is it that you're searching so hard and fast for the miracle a day? Well, the book of Acts. Well, as I read the book of Acts, there are about 30 to 31 miracles written in the book of Acts. Now, you can sit down and read it in one evening. And you might tend to think that miracles happen every 10 minutes, every 24 hours. But you fail to realize that the book of Acts was written over a 30-year time span. It's about a miracle a year on an average. More than the miraculous is the providential. The miraculous is when God supernaturally intervenes in your history. He breaks through. It's obvious. It's out of the ordinary. It defies the laws of nature. Jesus walking on the water, that was a miracle. The parting of the Red Sea, definitely a miracle. Feeding of the 5,000, a miracle. Touching somebody, having them instantly healed, a miracle. The providential is somewhat hidden. Providence is where God takes the ordinary events of your life, weaves them together to perform His will. It is no less extraordinary. It's just that it comes to you in an ordinary form. God works supernaturally, naturally. That's providence. The word itself is very suggestive. Providence comes from two Latin words, provideo or provideo. To see in advance, God sees everything about your life before it happens. And he edits it. He splices this scene here and that scene there, and God sees your whole life before you see it. You were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you and ordained you that you should bear forth fruit. The scripture says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed... Now, when you're in the middle of your life and God is working providentially, it didn't seem like a big deal. But every now and then stop and look back and take inventory. Look where you've come from. And try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Think back to how you came to know the Lord, the next person you met, and how you just circumstantially met the person on the corner who led you to this church, who led you to that. And as you look backwards through the events of your life, you might be prone to do what I do every now and then. I look back and just go, whoa. Amazing how God has woven those elements together. I didn't notice it at the time, but as I look back, it was perfect. There's a lot of things, however, that I do not understand about my past and my present. And every now and then I'm prone to say, you know, when I get to heaven, I have a few things I'm going to ask God about. But I've learned something. I don't think I'm going to ask God those questions. I think at that point I'm not going to care. I'm just going to be very happy that I'm there. And that will overshadow all the little doubts or misgivings that I've had while I've been here. I've learned to maintain a little file in my computer upstairs. It just says, wait for further information. Don't judge anything before the time. Don't make a value judgment. Don't say, God, why did you or why didn't you? Just tuck it away. Wait for further information. Later on, you might get a little further information. I have. 
there's a few things still filed away in there that haven't been answered. That's all right. Joseph was a man who learned to view life through the lens of God's providential care. And because he saw life that way, that God's hand was on it, he learned to forgive and be very generous with people's mistakes and sins because he saw God in it. One of the secrets to you being able to forgive others is number one, seeing that you're a sinner already and that God forgave you. And number two, see your life as orchestrated by God. You can only do that if your life is surrendered to Him. If you abide in Him, if you're trusting Him on a daily basis, then whatever unfolds, you say, hey, God's in this somewhere. Now, if you go ahead and take the reins of your life, you say, hey, God, it's been a nice few months or few years, but I'd like to take my life back for a while. Would you just scoot over? I'd like to drive. And you're going down the road. Crash. Don't you dare lift a fist at God and say, God, why did you allow me to crash? Well, you dummy. You're the one that took control for a while. You never surrendered your, that portion of your life to Him. It's funny how some people mess their lives up to such an extreme and then they wonder, why did God allow this to happen? Well, God gave you a free choice. And the best choice is to let him do the driving. And then, if you get into a pickle, you get into a jam, you get a flat tire on life's road, or you get a little bump or even a crash, and you say, hey, wait a minute, God's driving. And I can trust him. I don't know why this has happened, but I know that God has been in control. Joseph learned to view life that way, as we saw in chapter 45, and so he forgives. And we left off last week by saying there are four things about forgiveness that chapter 45, or we should say Joseph's life, tells us about. Four things that mark true forgiveness. And I'd like you to look real briefly at chapter 45, verse 1, and notice that forgiveness is demonstrated when you don't want others to know about the wrong that the person has committed. In verse 1 we read, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I think Joseph did this because he didn't want to endanger his brother's reputation. They had just come from Canaan. He didn't want the Egyptians to have the chance to gossip about his brothers. Did you know what Joseph's brothers did to him when he was 17? Those creeps, I'll tell you what. Something could have started against them. True forgiveness is when you don't hold a grudge, you don't want others to know. You don't go out of your way to say, well, you know that person, I forgave him. In fact, let me tell you his sin and tell you how I came to forgive him. True forgiveness doesn't bring it up. Let them go from me, Joseph said. And alone with his brothers, he confronted them. Uh, secondly, in verse 3, we notice that forgiveness wants to make a person feel at ease. Notice these verses with me. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold in Egypt. Now, I think the reason that he did this, or one of the reasons, is that as you get close to a person you read the expression on their face. 
you hear their tone of voice. You're more in tune with their communication than when you're at a distance. So they're going, oh, no, they're dismayed at his presence. He goes, come here. I'm Joseph. I don't think he said, I'm Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He was revealing himself to his brothers. It was a kind and tender-hearted communication. He wanted them to feel at ease. Hey, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Then we go on in the next verse and look at verse 5. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the third mark about forgiveness. Forgiveness will not allow a person to not forgive himself. And so he says, don't be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. I don't want you to feel bad about this. Sometimes we say that we forgive, but we remind the person whom we have forgiven. We bring it up. Now, you remember, of course, 20 years ago what you did, and you remember how that turned out, I think, don't you? True forgiveness won't bring it up. The hatchet is buried, the handle is buried. You can't grab it again. And then in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Forgiveness makes it easy for a person to forgive himself. God sent me here. I'm the guy you sold, but God put me here. So before you get angry with yourself, know that I've forgiven you, and it was God providentially who by your selling me brought me down to Egypt to preserve your life, to save your life. This is God that has done this for me. Behind it all is a sovereign God. Total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Now, we get over to chapter 46. And chapter 46 and 47 is the transition point. A famine has occurred throughout all of the land. Joseph's brothers have been tested. They appeared before him three times. The final time, you remember, is when they put, actually, the second time they appeared before Joseph. Joseph put grain in their sacks, but he put his silver cup of divination in Benji's sack. And so he told his guard, hey, go follow these guys down the road and catch up with them and say, hey, you ripped off Joe's cup. He wants it back. Which one of you ripped it off? Now, I'm paraphrasing this because we live in 1992. And uh, the brother said, hey, man, we didn't rip it off. And hey, you find it in our possession, and whoever you find it with will be your slave forever. Fair enough. They search all of them. They finally open Benjamin's sack. Lo and behold, Benji has the cup. All the brothers go, oh, no. God has paid us back for the sin that we have committed against Joseph. And they all go back to Egypt to appear before Joseph. Joseph, in chapter 45, reveals the fact that he's their brother, forgives them, loves them, and says, go back and get dad. Take all of your possessions, all of your family, all of your livestock and come back to the land. And so, verse 1, chapter 46, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. Understand that old Jacob, being 130 years old at this point, doesn't want to mess his life up anymore. He's a little apprehensive of going down to Egypt. You say, how come? Joseph's down there. You think he'd be elated? Well, yes and no. 
God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan, the land in which you are, this is your home. This is your land. Do not go down to Egypt. Don't go down there. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't trust the Egyptians. Abraham went down to Egypt. There was a famine in the land. And because of the famine, it became so severe, he took his eyes off God, went down to Egypt, told Abimelech concerning Sarah, his wife, this is my sister. He had a lapse of faith, cost him some time, cost him his reputation. Isaac went down. God told him not to do it. And so Jacob is a little bit hesitant to go down to Egypt because he knows, no, the land of Canaan was the land that God promised me and the rest of my family that we would dwell in. And so what does he do? He goes to Beersheba. Why? Because that's where Abraham went to talk to God. And so Jacob, being 130 years of age, goes down to offer up a sacrifice. He wants to get his cues from God. He wants to talk it over with his creator. And God tells him, don't be afraid. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for there I will make of you a great nation. And I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. I've got to say that at this point, I admire Jacob. At one point, he was a man of the flesh, right? He didn't pray. Remember when he was leaving the land of Canaan for the first time, going to Haran, going to Laban, his uncle? Did he bother praying? Was he concerned really about the will of God? No, he just ripped his brother off and he was scared for his hide. And he and his mother get a little plan going and he decides to go visit Uncle Laban and stay there for a little while until his brother's anger is cooled off. And he arrives in the central mountain ridge at a place called Bethel, formerly called Luz. And while he's there one night camping out under the stars stretches and he puts his head on a rock. He dreams the kind of dreams that people often dream in places such as this. But this is a little bit different. He sees the angels of God going up and down on a ladder and God speaks to him from atop the ladder. He says, I'm the God of your father Abraham and Isaac and I'll lead you back to this place one day. He wakes up and he said, God's in this place. I didn't know it. See, he wasn't concerned. He wasn't talking to God. He wasn't asking permission. He just left. God graciously intervened. Years later, God spoke to him again at the same place. Now he wants directions from God. He's grown in grace. You know, here's a lesson for us. Unfortunately, it took this guy a long time to learn it. Start surrendering every single day of your life to God. Wake up every morning. And say, good morning, Lord. Instead of saying, good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> say, good morning, Lord. I surrender my day to you. I don't know what you have planned for me. I've got a few plans here. Got to be at work. Got to go visit the dentist. Got to go to the da-da-da-da. But I surrender my plans to you. You want to change anything? Hey, go for it. But I want to do your will. What would you have me to do? Lay it on my heart as I spend some time with you in your word and in prayer. There's an awful lot of people who carry this book around, but they only open it on Sunday. Practically, they're atheists. Professionally, they're Christians. But they only get their cues from God by a spoon-fed method, by what someone else teaches them from a pulpit or from a tape or from a book. But it's good to dig in it for yourself. 
Ask God simple thing. God, do you want me to do that? Is that the house you have for me? Is that where you want me to move, Lord? Is that the city you've had planned out for me or the school you've got picked out? Surrender your heart and your life to him on a daily basis. Look at God's promise, verse 3. Don't fear to go down to Egypt. I will make of you a great nation there. Did he do it? You betcha. Turn over to chapter 1 of Exodus. I'm sneaking ahead. Look at a couple verses with me. Exodus 1, verse 6, Joseph died and all of his brothers in that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly and mighty, and the land was full of them. How full? Oh, to the tune of 2,100,000 with a conservative estimate. Jacob brought his family, his sons, their sons, and there were about 70 to 75 people altogether when he went down. And they increased to a conservative estimate when Moses took the children of Israel out of over 2 million humanoids. That's a lot of growth. I'll make you a great nation. Boy, did he. Don't be afraid, Jake. Go down. You'll be a great nation. And I'll go with you. And I will surely bring you up again. Now, wait a minute. I'll bring you up again. Jacob died in Egypt. How did he get brought up again? Well, the children of Israel will be delivered through Moses eventually, 400 and some odd years later. But also, before he dies, he'll get Joseph and he'll say, Joseph, put your hand right here on my thigh. Swear to me that when I kick the bucket, you'll bury me in the land of Canaan. Swear it. And so he was brought up, but it was after he died. And he was buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, where Abraham and Sarah and... uh, Isaac were all buried. And notice what he says. Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You know what he's speaking of? You will die in the presence of your son Joseph. When a person dies, if you've ever watched a person die, they don't close their eyes like in the old movies. You have to close the eyelids of a person, and that was reserved for the closest of kin, preferably the son. And the son of favor in this case was Joseph. You will die... Joseph will close your eyes, and it was the custom of the son to take his hand and sweep it over the face of the father, closing the eyes, and then giving the corpse a final kiss. Then the burial would take place, and we're going to see that this happens here. Jacob arose from Beersheba and his sons, the sons of Israel, carrying their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, and the carts, these chariots, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And so... They took their livestock, their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they went to Egypt, Jacob and all of his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the children of Israel. Jacob and his sons who went down to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. I'm going to stop right there. You can look ahead, right, and you see a list. It's a genealogical list. It's a whole bunch of Hebrew names. I'm not going to read them to you. There's some interesting things, and if you like this sort of thing, hey man, knock yourself out. Study it sometime in depth. There's some interesting names in here. They will crop up again. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Merari, and the like are written about. You'll see them. In fact, you'll have their names memorized by the time we get through the Bible because they're so significantly spoken of. 
Some of the names crop up in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You might ask, why is this genealogy even here? Why didn't the Spirit of God speak about some relevant life issue instead of a bunch of names? For two reasons. Number one, these names lead up to the genealogy of Jesus. Number two, nobody is not important to God. All of the so-called little people are big people to God. I like genealogies because of that reason. All of the people that we would say, oh, these names, just get on to something important. God records. That's a little commentary on you. You live in a city of maybe 500,000 people. You think, boy, I feel swallowed up by this huge number of people. We're all a bunch of numbers. In the midst of the populace, you are an individual before God, and God cares about you. Now, I look at these names, and, and to tell you the truth, I don't care much for the names. But God does. I don't number the hairs of their head, but God does. You're of great concern and, and importance to the Father. He's esteemed you greatly. And even the very hairs of your head, the Scripture says, are numbered. So if you want to go through them, great. Especially if uh, you're thinking of having little ones. And I know a lot of Christians like to choose biblical names for their children. Though I don't see many of these used in these verses uh, Goonie, Jeezer, uh, Laban, haven't seen, I've never dedicated a Laban. I suppose I never will. Uh, pick it up at verse 26. All the persons who went down with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who went down to Egypt were 70. And so God got quite a return when it says he made them a great nation, 2,100,000 on a conservative estimate when they left with Moses. And then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. Uh, the map is not up tonight, but in the back of your Bible is a map, and you notice that in Egypt, the northern part, the river of the Nile branches out and fans out into the Nile Delta, smack dab in the middle of the Nile Delta, where the silt from the Nile River runs through the plains of Africa and empties into the sea there. It's the most fertile part of Canaan. That's the land of Goshen. That's where Jacob and his sons, being shepherds, being nomads, will settle and increase in population. They came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. I like this next phrase. And he presented himself to him. You know, Joseph was a bigwig, all right? He was the prime minister. He was number two. He had personalized plates on his chariot. I mean, he was an important guy. But he doesn't go to his father and say, Dad, remember that little dream I had a long time ago you rebuked me for when I said you'd bow down? Hit it, baby, bow. The wording here is quite the contrary. He presents himself to his father. That's a sign of respect. The relationship with dad is still there. I think there's a lesson in Joseph that those of us who grow up should remember. Actually, those of us who grow up. What a dumb thing to say. We all grow up. It reminds me of something actually I say to my son. I say, Nathan, stop growing. And he says, Dad, I can't grow. Everybody grows. Well, that makes sense. All right. 
When we grow older, sometimes I notice that some kids lose a respect for their parents. Lose the honor. By the time a kid hits his teens, his 20s, you know, when he's a teenager and when he's in college, his parents are dumb. It takes a few years of learning, if the kid's away from the home, maybe four or five years. By the time that kid comes back and sees his parents again, it's amazing how much his parents have learned in that time. You get the drift. And oftentimes, you know, the, the kid is, oh, you're so, oh, mom, you're just so dumb, mom. You don't understand. And, and the respect is lost. I remember how I lost my respect for my father. You know, when I was a kid, my father knew everything. He was the smartest guy in the world. He could fix anything. Then I became a young whippersnapper. I went through junior high and high school, and I just thought, oh, what do these guys know? They're so old. They're of another generation. This is the new generation. It's the 60s and 70s. And that's just sick. It it happens. It's cyclic. We all go through that. Joseph still respects his father. He presents himself to them. And again, the Hebrew language signifies a respect. He fell on his neck And he wept on his neck a good while. How long? I don't know. But a good while would seem rather long. It wasn't just a handshake. Dad, good to see you. It was an emotional time. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die. Since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers... And those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. Now, you know, I I think that Jacob barely made this trip. He's old. He's 130 years old at this point. And when his brothers come back and say, Joseph is alive, his heart stops. You know, he has this, some kind of heart trouble. And when they finally convince him Joseph is alive and he invited us to Egypt, it says he revived again. But he's 130. I, I think it was a long, hard trip all the way from Hebron down to Beersheba, across that Gaza Strip, all the way down into Egypt. He had one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel. Until he sees his son, and he revives again. And though he's old and signifies that he's about to die before he comes up, he lasts 17 more years. Keep that number in mind. 17 more years. He lives and he spends it in Egypt. Now, Joseph says to his brothers, to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and say, my brothers have come. Verse 32, and this is what I'm going to say. The men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have, and so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. See what's happening here? Joseph wants them to have the best part of Egypt, Goshen. It's the best place for their flocks. So he sends them to Goshen, and then he says, okay, now look, you're going to meet Pharaoh. When you meet Pharaoh, I want you to say that you're a shepherd. The Egyptians hate shepherds, and he's going to probably say, Go to the land of Goshen, definitely. That's where the cattle are. That's where the sheep are. He's got his own flocks down there. It's the best place in the land. You tell them that you're a shepherd. Shepherds are an abomination. A little side note. What is interesting 
about this phrase is that the Pharaoh himself, whom Joseph speaks to, is not pure Egyptian. He's a Hiskos king, H-Y-S-K-O-S. The Hiskos rulers were shepherd nomads from Saudi Arabia who migrated toward Egypt, infiltrated Egypt, eventually took it over, and formed a dynasty. They did not trust the full-blooded Egyptians. That's one of the reasons Joseph was probably allowed, of course, again by God's providence, to become second in command. There was a closer blood tie with Joseph that Pharaoh had than with any of the Egyptians. Shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians, but not to the Pharaoh himself. That's the Pharaoh's background at this point, the Hiskos Pharaoh, until he is overthrown some years later. When we read in Exodus chapter 1, I think verse 8, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. That's the pure Egyptian dynasty once again. Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, gives him the whole spiel, my father and brothers, their flocks, their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they're in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? They said, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land because of your servants. They have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. And Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blessed, or Jacob blessed the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, as he looks at Jacob and he says, How old are you? Now, if you or I tried to do that to an elderly person, we'd get in trouble for it. Try that sometime. This person goes, how old are you? Obviously, he could look at his weather-beaten face, and he knew this guy was an old cookie. So he says, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days, the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of, the, of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. I've got to hand it to Jake. If he was living by his old nature, he would have answered the Pharaoh in a proud kind of a manner. How old are you? He probably would have said, Hey, I'm 130 years old, and let me tell you some of my accomplishments. When I was younger, I tricked my brother out of his birthright, made a lot of money at the hand of my brother Laban, took a lot of money from him and his sheep when I left. And uh, by the way, I've got 12 sons. You've got one of them here. He's a good boy, as you found out. And I've got a few others just like him. By his nature, he bragged. We remember that from the old uh, chapters that we've read in the past. But he's a little humbler now. He says, hey, I'm 130 years old, and few and evil have been the days of my life. He's recounting all of his history. And he says, even though I'm 130 years old, hey, I, it's nothing compared to grandpa and great-grandpa. Terah, Abraham's dad, lived to be 205. 
Abraham lived to be 185. Isaac lived to be 170. 175, somewhere around there. He says, I'm only 130. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh commanded. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. Now, just for those of you who are historically inclined, it says that they settled in the land of Goshen. That's the old name. It was known as Goshen at the time of Joseph and the Hiskos kings. It was not known by the term Ramses because he didn't exist. Ramses II came much later, the time of Moses. But for the readers who would read this at the time... They would understand. They wouldn't understand the land of Goshen, but they would understand uh, that modern term, the land of Ramses. Sort of like if you said, here we are in Texas tonight. Most of you say, what? This is New Mexico. This isn't Texas. But at one time, this was Texas. And before that, it was known by other names. And so for our benefit, you call it by its modern name. All right. Let's get back to the text. Verse 13, There was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe in the land of Egypt. And all the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? The money has failed. Joseph said, Give me your livestock, and I'll give you bread for your livestock if the money's gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, donkeys, basically all their livestock. It was a trade. And then the famine got worse. And so in verse 19, they come and they say, Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we in our land, we will be servants of the Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. And so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the border of Egypt to the other end. That's where the grain was. Only the land of the priests... He did not buy, for the priests' rations were allotted to them by the Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Joseph said to the people, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here's seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you will give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of the households, your households, and as food for your little ones. And so they said, you saved our lives. What a great attitude. A lot of people would say, hey, you ripped us off, man. Too much government intervention. What right do you have? To... Hey, listen. Joseph came up with a good plan. It's going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He saved up, and by his plan, they were able to be saved. And they recognized, hey, thank you for the plan. You saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, 20% tax, flat. 
except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they had possessions there, and they grew, and they multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Remember I said keep that in your mind? The 17 years that he spent in Egypt correspond to the 17 years that Joseph spent nurtured by him in the land of Canaan. For when Joseph was 17 years of age, that is when he left Canaan and went to Egypt, nurtured and cared for by his father 17 years. Now in return, interestingly enough, Jacob as an old man is under the care of his son who's in charge of the known world. The dynasty of Egypt under the Hiskos kings, and he provides for him for 17 years in the land. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Wow. Ripe old age. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please don't bury me in Egypt. Put yourself, for a moment, in Jacob's sandals. Jacob remembered that God promised him which land? Egypt? No, Canaan. This is the land of your father, Abraham, Isaac. And this is the land you and your sons and your, uh, your, uh, the rest of your sons and their sons' sons will occupy, the land of Canaan. This is the land I've given you. He's afraid that if they go down to Egypt, now that they're there, the land, uh, they're going to prosper under the hand of Pharaoh and they're going to just enjoy the land and get lazy. They're going to like it there. They're not going to want to leave. That did happen, by the way. When Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 B.C., took captive all of the children of Judah, took them to Babylon, 70 years later, when it was time for them to come back, a fraction of them returned. The rest of them said, no way, Jose. We got it nice right here in Babylon. Thank you, no. Send 50,000 missionaries. The rest of us would just like to stay put. Jacob is afraid that this could happen. He says, God promised that I would have that land and that I would be brought up from there. I want you to take me there. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt. Bury, bury me in their burial place. And he said, Okay, I'll do it. I'll do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. You know, in the old days, they didn't have contracts. They didn't say, Now, you've got to sign right here that you're going to make these payments every month from now till you die. That's what the bank does now. And if you miss a payment, then we're going to come back and slap a penalty. And if you miss the penalty, then we just own it. In those days, a word of mouth, a person's word of mouth was sufficient. If a person said something, that was good enough. And so he said, just swear to me, and he did. Hi, I hear somebody playing guitar in the back there. How are you doing? I know who it is, and he's going to come out and play in just a moment. <laughs> Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. Now he's 147 years old. He knows he's about to kick the bucket. But he loves the son of his loved wife, Rachel. And he hears, Joseph's coming. And the kids, the grandkids, oh, he gets up. 
makes his way up, you know, to, to see who's coming. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Just a couple words. We can't cover the whole chapter tonight. I don't want to, but Manasseh is mentioned before Ephraim, right? Manasseh is the firstborn. Manasseh should be the one who gets the blessing, who becomes the head of the family, the head of the tribe, the head of Joseph's clan. That is called the law of primogeniture. It's been a custom of early peoples way back when. The firstborn gets the right. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the one who got it. God prophesied that. Jacob tricked him out of it. Manasseh is the firstborn. I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up. It's because there is a group of people who call themselves Christians. They are known as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they have this elaborate, detailed structure of false doctrine that they spew out across this land as they knock on your door with a smile on their face, a Bible in their hand, and they claim to give you the truth, and they try to catch you off guard. And they'll use things like this. The idea of the firstborn. They'll quote Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 18. That Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many creatures. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn among God's creation. So they say, look, Jesus is the firstborn. He cannot be God if he was the firstborn. He's the son of God, the firstborn of God. And so they say God created Jesus, the firstborn, and the firstborn created all other things. Even in their translation, the New World translation of the Bible, which is absolutely the worst, according to the Greek tongue, it's the worst translation ever translated, our Bible says Jesus created all things the Jehovah Witnesses translate it, Jesus created all other things. They put that in there. There's not one manuscript on earth that has it in there, except for theirs. Because they say he's the firstborn. God created the Son, the Son created all other things. What they neglect to see is the rule of preeminence. They're going by the law of primogeniture. There's the law of preeminence. If you read the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, God speaking says, I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, wait a minute. In chapter 48, we, if you read on, it says Manasseh is the firstborn, and he was born first. God says Ephraim is the firstborn. You cannot have two people born first. Twins, you know, one is born after the other. You can't have two firstborns. What God was saying is that there's a law of preeminence. I am designating Ephraim to be above Manasseh. A prophecy given here by Jacob as Jacob blesses by crossing his hands and giving the youngest the rite of passage, not the oldest. When it says Jesus is the firstborn, it means he's the most important one designated by the Father. He's to be given the preeminence. It doesn't mean he was the first created. 
But because the Jehovah Witnesses love to take things out of context, they don't read Jeremiah 31 in context with Genesis 48, they get it all messed up and they miss the law of preeminence. And you might want to show them as they come to your door and quote uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, you might want to show them um, Genesis 48 and say, now wait a minute, who was born first? They'll say, Manasseh, he's the firstborn. Then turn them to uh, Jeremiah 31 and say, it says here, God says Ephraim is my firstborn. How do you figure that? What's he talking about? And you can lead them along that law of preeminence. And what the whole idea of the firstborn was to the Hebrews. It, it will be a fascinating time that you'll have with them. Uh, they won't expect it if you pull this out because it's, uh, you know, they love pulling the most obscure things out and uh, you can just beat them at their game, have a lot of fun. I love what Jacob says in verse 3. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. He's now attributing things to God. Oh, listen, I wish he would have learned this lesson a long time ago. It would be great if he, as a young child, would have walked with God, but he went through the old school of hard knocks. Ever been to that school? Some of you are getting quite a few degrees in that school. You won't learn just by the Word of God or by lessons taught to you from the Spirit of God. You've got to just go prove it. Bang! Hit a wall, go the other direction. Jacob, it took him a long time to learn the lessons. But listen, God can teach you at any age if you're willing. You might be an old person at this point by human years, but God can still grab a hold of your heart and teach you a few things. God can teach an old dog new tricks. He did with this character. He tells Joseph this promise, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. <laughs> There's always three parts to the promise that God gave the patriarchs. Three parts to the promise. The first part, a nation. The second part, a land. The third part, a blessing. I'm going to make you a nation. In other words, a whole bunch of people are going to come from you. A great nation will be multiplied. Now that happened. 2,100,000 by the time of Moses, not bad. Today in the land of Israel, about 4 million, approaching 5, not bad. In a little land the size of Massachusetts or New Jersey, it's a lot of people. God promised them a portion of real estate, which since 1948 they have reclaimed. They're back in their land. God did not promise them the state of Texas or Italy or California, but this land of Israel that it would be there that God would establish His kingdom. The third part is that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. Through you, God told Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's because of that third part of that promise that you and I are sitting here tonight with a Bible in our hands worshiping God. Because God took a man by the name of Abraham, a Jewish nation was developed, the Messiah came from the other side of the globe, and he became a blessing that even the Gentiles would seek him. And we're recipients of his blessing tonight. The blessing that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there's that little land of Israel, once again, that is under controversy tonight. Uh, Saddam Hussein decided that he would uh, shoot a few Scud missiles over there a couple years ago. Uh, by the time Desert Storm hit, some estimate the Iraqis to be between 12 and 18 months away from perfecting their nuclear weapons. 
In the last 10 years, they've spent $10 billion employing people day and night to develop these weapons. And some people thought they were right on the brink of it. Perhaps even now they're on the brink of it. They've got an agenda to get Israel out of the land. Iran has a mega agenda to rally the Islamic people and kick Israel out of the land. But God has made a few promises. And I would bank on those promises more than I would bank on the nuclear capabilities of those two powers, which could soon be superpowers. Well, we're approaching the end of our study tonight. Uh, you know, I, I know, well, hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's go down to verse 7, call it quits, because there's a paragraph transition, and we'll finish it up next week. You know, I wanted to finish it tonight because I wanted to cover the last two chapters next time. But, que sera, sera, right? And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Hey, wait a minute, Dad. I mean, I love you, and, but these are my kids. No, they're mine. That's one of the most important verses in the Bible, by the way. Did you know that? Your two kids, they're mine. And he goes on to say, you have some more kids, they're yours, but these are mine. This is actually a blessing for Joseph. What Jacob is doing is conferring the right of a tribe to the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. He's saying, in other words, Joseph, I'm going to give you twice as much. Instead of having a tribe of Joseph in the land, there's going to be two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, your two sons are mine. You will be reckoned in your son's sons and your progeny from uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. So he gets two cuts, two shares in the future land. Isn't that great? As you read the Old Testament and you come through the tribes of Israel, you'll never find the tribe of Joseph. You don't find it till the book of Revelation when the 144,000 are numbered. You see a tribe of Joseph for a reason we'll discuss later. But you have the tribe of Ephraim and you have the tribe of Manasseh, which by any man's reckoning, if you take Joseph out, is 13 tribes, right? How do you come up with the 12 tribes of Israel then if there's 13 of them? They're always numbered as 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. There were 13 tribes, actually. That's because the wild card is Levi. He never owned any land because they were the priesthood. The priesthood got cities and portions of land scattered throughout the rest of the land of Israel as they go in under Joshua. And uh, they don't have their own land and their own places. Uh, so you come up with 12 tribes. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours, and you will be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. But as for me, when I come from, came from Badan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, and there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. We'll finish the rest next week. One final word to those um, who looked at the genealogies and thought, oh, a boring list of names. Remember I said they're important to God? There's another list that God keeps, a list of names, that I suppose if you were to read the list would be boring unless you came across your name. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. It's basically a book of names, a genealogy, a record. It wouldn't be the kind of book that would be a bestseller at Pickwick. Just a list of names. But blessed is everyone, the scripture says, whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written there? 
If you don't know that your name is written in that Lamb's book of life, well, that's one genealogy you ought to be interested in. Well, say, how do I get my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Simply by admitting your guilt to God and letting the Lamb who was slain for you cover your sins. And when you say, Jesus, Lamb of God, take away my sins, I make you my Lord and Savior, then you'll be written in the Lamb's book of life. You don't have to go through a religious system. You don't have to go through a series of works. You trust in him, and he'll write your name in his book. Wouldn't it be great one day to open that book and go, Ooh, there I am. If your name is written there, you have everlasting life. If it's not, you better start worrying. You better start worrying. Or just commit your life to Jesus tonight. Father, we want to thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we pray, Father, for those who might be here tonight, that you'd speak to their heart to confess their sins and to entrust their life to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Jesus